Hello and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny. I'm talking to you high above the Dongcheng District, I think, because I'm looking out the window and all I see is just one big blanket of smog, but someone tells me that Dongcheng is down there somewhere and I believe them. With me is my co-host, David Moser. Hi, but in a different sense. David, who discovered CBD in Taiwan. Yes. This tea, you claim it's poor tea that I'm drinking, but I taste some other elements in it. I'm suspicious. This might be an interesting podcast. By the way, we had dinner the other night with some colleagues, and I was surprised that some people actually listened to this podcast. It was amazing. I thought gee, we better actually say something useful occasionally. You know, but I, was, I, was, I was actually flattered and surprised. I, I assumed that those people would be the last people who would listen to us. You were shocked that people listened to us. Yeah. Well, well that those people would listen to us because they know, they, they know as much as we do. So I, why would they listen to us? But they do. Bathed in the validation and warmth of his co-host, <laughs> Matthew Hu is with us today. Matthew Hu is a trustee of the Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center. He's also at the Courtyard Institute, and he is perhaps, I have a hard time thinking of anybody else who speaks so well, so often, and so eloquently on issues of historic preservation, the history of Beijing. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm quite flattered to be here again. Uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to share some of my insight about preservation of old Beijing. Well, we're happy to have you. And also, we, I, I just heard you on David Rennie's The Economist's uh, Drum Tower podcast talking about the hutongs. Well, I'm getting popular on podcasts, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and by the way, for those of you out there in podcast land, if you're not listening to The Drum Tower by The Economist, I highly, highly recommend it. Although now that I'm saying this, this is kind of like the guy who's doing open mic at Patty O'Shea saying, you know, you really should check out that band, The Rolling Stones. They're awesome. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about the Forbidden City, and this is, this is a subject that you and I have talked about before. It's a subject that you and I have talked about in different podcasts, and we've talked about the history, who lived there, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but what, I, what I'm really interested in asking you is, what's going on with the Forbidden City right now? They just, they, they're, they just had a major anniversary, and there's another major anniversary coming up. Could you tell us a little bit more about these anniversaries? Well, uh, three years ago, we are... Uh, we were celebrating the 600th anniversary of the Palace Museum, or, or sorry, the Forbidden City. Uh, and uh, because the Forbidden City was uh, completed in uh, uh, 1420, so three years ago it was the 600th anniversary. And uh, in another two years, uh, it's going to be the 100th anniversary for the Palace Museum, uh, which was founded after the last emperor was kicked out of the Forbidden City in um, October uh, 1924. So the next year, the Palace Museum was founded. I mean, for Chinese, I think that uh, 100 is also is a very important uh, anniversary. And for the Forbidden Cities, 600th anniversary, because it's also 60, uh, 10 times of 60. You know that the Chinese uh, calendars were calculated based on the the Jiazi system, which is uh, uh, starting with a six a sixty year cycle, so it's ten cycles and the six one hundred, so that's a very important year uh, three years ago, and this coming uh, celebration of the Palace Museum for its one hundredth, I think it's also very important because the Palace Museum being the most important museum in China, uh, in the modern sense, so that's uh, 
also uh, the Chinese museum with the biggest collection. Uh, as far as I remember, I think they have over 100, sorry, 1.8 million pieces of heritage, plus about 800,000 uh, antique books. So that's one of the biggest collection throughout China. So uh, the influence, the cultural influence, uh, and its significance in terms of its uh, uh, modern Chinese history, uh, both very, very important for us to celebrate So uh, in two years. Maybe just a basic question, because people, I think, uh, tourists who go there are maybe not aware, at least in the past, that they were not seeing the whole city, the, the, the whole compound, yeah. because so there were so many sections that were not yet uh, restored. Or uh, So maybe you talk about the newly opened, I guess newly, it's been several years now, uh, but, but what kinds of things, are, what new sections have been opened up, and why, I assume that the reason for that is that it's just so painstaking and difficult to do that restoration work. It, you can't do it in one year. It takes many, many years of experts, and it has to be redone uh, periodically, right? So maybe maybe explain for people when you go into the Forbidden City what, you, what you're seeing and what you're not seeing and what new things can you see. Uh, of course, I think most of the people go to the Forbidden City, they will see most of the monuments along the central access line. You see the uh, Meridian Gate, mm -hmm. the, the Hall uh, of Supreme Harmony, and uh, the Imperial Garden. So those are the musts. Uh, and uh, those sections newly opened in the past few years. One section is the Tsinyungung uh, Palace and the, the Tsinyung uh, Garden as mm -hmm. well. So these two sections were newly opened uh, in the past, uh, I guess, seven, eight years yeah. ago. Uh, it has been a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, this section has two more uh, galleries. Uh, one is for the sculptures. So that's uh, a very uh, well-organized uh, sculpture section. Um, and uh, the second area I think they newly opened is the some of the side palaces for the concubines. So some of those uh, sections were closed up. And uh, there was also a fasting palace uh, on the east side. Uh, next to the a fasting palace, Jai, Jai Gong, uh, the so fasting palace. Why would there be a fasting palace? Whenever the emperor would like to maybe go uh, worship some of those temples in the palace, he will go fasting first mm -hmm. for a few days before he were able to perform the duties, uh, the rituals. So the fasting palace was also opened, mm -hmm. but it's not opened on a regular basis. Uh, so I think only when there was a new exhibition going on, they will open it up. So it's not something that you can count on for every okay. visit. Uh, but that that was opened uh, because that has been closed for a long time. Well, they the, the part I used to, was the place, my go-to place was the the Hall of Mental Cultivation. Yeah, where the, yeah. Uh, And it was closed for quite a while. Yes. Uh, and uh, then now it's, I haven't seen it since it's reopened. Was it, is it obvious? It, it hasn't been reopened. It, it still hasn't been reopened. It hasn't. Wow. Well, I, I think that's, uh, uh, that's because this place uh, hasn't been renovated after the last emperor was kicked out for oh. about 90 years. So about five years ago, uh, the, the previous uh, director to the Palace Museum, uh, Mr. Shen Jixiang, or Dr. Shen Jixiang, so he went to Hong Kong and met a gentleman there, uh, Ronnie Chen, who was also... A, a real estate magnate, right? But also he was president of uh, Asia Society. Uh -huh. So he was very active mm -hmm. uh, in mainland China in terms of real estate development, but also he was quite 
helpful in terms of restoring. Uh, I think his main project is the Forbidden City. Mm -hmm. So he has uh, renovated. Uh, he has renovated uh, um, the Jianfu uh, Gong, the Palace of Established Happiness. So that's a very important section. Uh, that section, although renovated, but hasn't been uh, opened to the public uh, ever since it was opened, because that's slightly hidden to the working sections, uh, to the office sections of the uh, Palace Museum, which is to the north uh, northwest section of the Forbidden City. Uh, that section was burned down, of course, uh, you probably know that, and burned down during uh, the last few years of the last emperor in the palace, uh, in I, I think it's 1922, because that palace was sealed after Qianlong passed away, and all the daily used stuff, like uh, a jade jar or a gold bowl or all the ceramics, were actually packed and stored in that palace. And his uh, son, uh, the emperor Jiaqing, uh, he said, my, my father is so great. Yeah, so great. So I will never touch everything that he has used mm -hmm. to show my respect for my father, who is considered as the greatest mm -hmm. emperor in the world, in, in history, Chinese history. So um, that place has been sealed until 1922. And uh, the last emperor, one day, just cycled down there, and he found out that there was a, you know, a palace he hasn't been into. So he asked the eunuch to remove all the locks. So they opened it up. And uh, he discovered, you know, all the wealth. Oh, wow. He started to sell them mm -hmm. to make sure that he can keep up his living standard. Mm -hmm. Because the although the um, Republican government uh, agreed to pay uh, four million taels of silver or four million silver coins every year, but never really were able to make it up because <laughs> of all the uh, all the wars um, between all the warlords. So. So he found a, a way to make, uh, you know, uh, make his keep up his living standard. But uh, you know, all the eunuchs were not being paid uh, for the past few years. So uh, I guess at night, lots of people really sneaked in, so they steal a lot of stuff. So one day, uh, the uh, Pui decided to just have a complete uh, inventory uh, building just to find out how many treasures or how many golden uh, utensils really in there. Mm -hmm. And that evening, they knew it would be the last chance. So everybody ran Stop. into <laughs> Somebody, you know, they were carrying, there was no torch, so they were carrying uh, lamps. Uh, so I guess somebody stepped on a lamp, and so it burned down the entire palace. And Ronnie Chan, I think he started maybe around year 2000 to rebuild that section. That was one of his major contributions to, uh, to the Palace Museum. It took them about uh, 10 years to complete. 10 years, yeah. So that's the other part of my question. Uh, you know, could you just, I know it's very detailed, but um, what, what are the challenges that they face? Because they, the, the materials have to be, even, even that the distinctive red color uh, of paint, you know, they can't just go get a Sherwin-Williams, uh, you know, Forbidden City color paint because it doesn't look, it doesn't look right, so they have to actually do the painting with more or less the original uh, technique of mixing the, the the colors and stuff. But, but you know, ten years to just just to do one section. First of all, I think it's uh, they're trying to do it uh, the most uh, traditional way, 
So by doing the most traditional way, meaning that uh, the preparation uh, phase will take a lot of time. For example, uh, just take timbers, for example. Uh, all the timbers needs to be prepared. By saying prepared, not meaning that uh, you just uh, cut them into the right uh, shape. Uh, it's no, more than that. So actually, there is a period of time you need the, the timber to rest, to actually to completely dry up. So for this kind of project in the past, it normally will take the, the carpenters to find the right timber and lay them there dry for maybe two or three years. And because the, the timber, after it's cut into the, the right dimensions, you actually also need it to completely dry up. There's a lot of uh, 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 water inside the timber. It needs to evaporate. As the water uh, elements evaporate, the, the, the timber itself actually continue to change. So it will continue to twist. So you need to have the, the timber twist to a, to a face that it will never really make major twist again. So that's the point that you know this timber is ready. Some of these projects, uh, I wouldn't name the, the, the project that I know. I know some of these projects were in very bad shape because they, didn't, they were not patient. They, they, they got the funding this year, they wanted, wanted it done next year. But the timbers were not fully ready, so they used the timber for the project. So that's why some of these uh, newly restored sections of old Beijing, you, you can't really go up and visit. That's part of the reason why you know, it takes so long. Uh, and also, for example, the, the golden bricks. The golden bricks were only made in Suzhou. So if they want to use the traditional techniques. Uh, I believe before Ronnie Chan started his um, uh, project with the Palace Museum, uh, some of the traditional techniques were, I wouldn't say lost, but uh, it's very difficult to get the right team to assemble the right kind of material to get it done uh, on an order basis. So you can't really come here and say, please order for this amount of uh, materials. It actually takes them some time to really, you know, go back and find the, the traditional craftsmanship uh, and uh, uh, started to prepare the materials. This kind of gold bricks, for example, the mud uh, needs to be painstakingly uh, a long period of time to prepare the, the right kind of mud. Um, because the, the reason that we call it golden bricks is because when you hit the brick, you hear the sound of a metal. It's not because it's made of gold. When we say gold, uh, sometimes we mean metal in, in Chinese, yeah, in the, in the five elements system. So um, it has to be very well prepared uh, kind of mud. And also, you have to be, you have to follow certain procedures to make sure that uh, it's being fired in the right temperature. And after it's fired, then you need to use the tone oil to immerse the the brick in the tone oil for a long period of time. I can't remember how long, but maybe two or three weeks at least. Uh, sometimes maybe even longer. But uh, the reason that they want the tone oil. To, to be applied to the surface of the, the brick is to make sure that all the little holes being filled so that when you uh, take it up, not only, be, not only the surface become very shiny, but also uh, when you hit it, the, the sound is even better. So 
it's painstakingly to prepare all the materials. Going back to the, the, the destruction of the warehouse, the storage room where a lot of those artifacts were kept, what role did the preservation of artifacts, the protection of those artifacts, particularly after the fire, have in inspiring and motivating historians and curators to say, listen, we need to protect these things better. How do we do that? Because there, there were attempts to establish collections prior to 1925, prior to Puyi even leaving the Forbidden City. But it does seem that the fire and some of the you know, items that were lost either through sale or through theft, it, it caused a little bit of a crisis. Like how much are we losing? So maybe talk about the connection between that, that period of relative chaos, even at the Forbidden City, where things were getting lost, things were going missing, and the, de- and the decision or the process of kind of creating a modern museum out of this old space. I think, first of all, those artifacts uh, burned down or destroyed in the Jianfu Palace, uh, the palace of established happiness. Um, many of them were not considered as uh, antiques or heritage uh, because they were daily used stuff. Of course, nowadays, any piece of it, even parts, <laughs> we will consider that very precious. Uh, but uh, back then, in 1922, I think the definition of what is heritage, what is uh, antique, was not the same like we have today. Secondly, um, most of them were, were really destroyed, completely destroyed. Uh, so nobody had any uh, systematic count on how many we really got lost. It must be a heavenly number if we come up with a lump sum. Um, if we give it a dollar number, it's going to be quite amazing. Uh, and uh, when we talk about the artifacts being preserved, uh, I will have to mention that you know this uh, courageous uh, effort to transport all the uh, antiques of the Palace Museum all the way down to Yangtze River and then all the way up the Yangtze to Chongqing during the Japanese invasion period. So that was an amazing process, well-well managed. Uh, I believe that uh, uh, almost uh, no artifacts were stolen in that process. That's even more amazing. That's amazing. That's even more amazing, considering the fact that uh, uh, the nationalist government was so corrupted during those period of time. And um, many of the collections were also actually donated to the Palace Museum after 1949. And I know some people uh, from that Shijiahutong area actually donated stuff. There was a Westerner who donated a lot of uh, antique bronzeware. So that's taking a large portion of the bronzeware collection in the Beijing Palace Museum because most of the bronzeware actually went down to Taiwan, to Taipei, uh, in the Taipei Palace Museum. So that's uh, um, you know, how they started to recollect and uh, come up with this 1.8 million. There's actually a new book about that entire process, The, uh, the Fragile Cargo the World War II Race to Save the Treasures of China's Forbidden City by Adam Brooks. Great book. I'm, I'm in the middle of, uh, of, I'm halfway through it. It's a great book. Yeah, very, very good book. You say, what was this total you gave now that they estimate of the uh, artifacts in the Forbidden City? How many million? 1.83 million, million, I think. Million. Oh. So 
there's a, a large section of the, some of the best stuff is in, in the Taipei Bugong. Uh, a lot of it was lost. A lot of it was stolen by Unix uh, and is floating out. Some of it went overseas at auctions and so forth. What, how, what are we talking about here? The, the, what percentage of the original, of what was originally there is still there? I mean, is it, is it most, is it half and half? Is it a third is, is not located in the forbidden city? Or what, I mean, where are these I believe the I believe the still the large majority of the uh, treasures from the palace museum in Republican period still stays with the mainland mm -hmm. with the Beijing Palace Museum. A small fraction, maybe twenty thirty percent, went to Taipei. Well, that's not a small fraction. <laughs> twenty thirty percent is a lot. Yeah. It, it's a lot, and but it's uh, some of the best or the most you know historically prized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Area. I think because of the time constraint, mm -hmm. um, uh, because of the civil war broke out in nineteen forty six, so the uh, process of transporting back to Beijing was stopped in Nanjing. So they were staying in Nanjing for about a year. So until end of uh, uh, end of 1948, early 1949, they started the, this process of getting some of the cargoes to Taipei. And uh, so they can only select the best, uh, the most valuable ones. So most of the paintings, mm -hmm. because they were small, light, but they were highly valuable. What's that painting that has half, half of it's in Taipei? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the... So uh, this painting you were just talking about is called a Fu Chunshan Ju Tu. So this one was done by a Yuan Dynasty painter called Huang Gongwang. But basically, Huang Gongwang uh, was a very famous Chinese painter, and he painted a long scroll, just you know, depicting the beautiful scenery along a very beautiful river in Zhejiang province, uh, Fu Chunjiang, uh, along the Fu Chunjiang uh, River. So uh, it was later collected by a very famous painter, a famous collector, and uh, this collector liked this piece of painting so much. So uh, at his dying bed, he requested his son just to throw it into the fire to burn the, the painting together with his spirit going to the uh, other world. And uh, his son did that at his request because they didn't, didn't want to disobey him. Filial piety. Filial piety. But uh, as soon as he, he just uh, passed away and uh, his other son took it out immediately from the fire. So that at that point, that painting has been uh, burned, partially burned. So they reframed it uh, into two paintings. Mm -hmm. So the, the Fu Chun Shen Tu was uh, collected by the Taipei Palace Museum. And the Ban Shan, Sheng Shan Tu, because only the mountains remaining, uh, so the Sheng Shan Tu, yeah, uh, right, yeah. is uh, collected later by the Zhejiang, I believe it's Zhejiang Provincial Museum. And, and you say those two separate parts of the painting have been united? Yes, for some, I, I some believe that. Uh, I believe that uh, in um, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, when Ma Yingjiu was uh, Yingjiu, yeah. uh, uh, in his office, so he uh, the two parts uh, ma managed to get uh, these two paintings together. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, like a unity showing, you know. Uh, a lot of straits uh, unity, yeah. <laughs> something we're not likely to see today. Yeah. Here's a question I'm curious mm. about. I've mm. heard that that there's most of these collections because they have to be stored in in uh, temperature controlled environments. Mm. Everything mm. is is there a huge underground uh, warehouse is. and there that, is. that 
Can you describe that? And have you been there? I would because love of, to see that. Mm, because of my work, I was able to go into, uh, you know, behind the pu public uh, open areas of the Palace Museum. But this is the only section I have never been to. Oh, it's, uh, it's very secretive? It's I mean, very, very, uh, I mean... Tightly controlled. Tightly really. controlled. I think that's very, very uh, important to do that. If people like me can get access easily... I would have doubts, <laughs> serious I, doubts. I, I've never uh. even seen photographs of what it looks like. It must be in an amazing uh, underground mm, facility. Mm, I mean, mm. it must, it's mm. probably guarded like, you know, Fort Knox or the Pentagon mm. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, part of the Forbidden City, I know they have uh, underground facilities. Uh, actually, some other parts were also, uh, I mean, they're, they're also actually building a new section of the Palace Museum in somewhere in Haidian. I haven't been there, but they call it Bei Yuan, the northern section mm. of the Palace Museum. Uh, it's supposed to be the area where they can uh, they can restore large uh, sized antiques or treasures, because for the facilities in the Palace Museum, they have a restoration uh, team, mm -hmm. and uh, they are very professional, very dedicated, and they are now very proud of their work. Actually, I, I know that uh, because of um, Documentary. Yeah, there was this, uh, what's I Gugong Xiu Wen Wu. Xiu Wen Wu. Uh, so yeah. after that uh, documentary was aired, uh, I mean, application for this uh, yeah, <laughs> job is, uh, is it, increased. It, it, it made it look really cool and interesting, but I bet Indeed. it's mostly tedious and boring. <laughs> yes, but uh, after you know you have uh, spent that much time doing this kind of uh, very important work, uh, if you are able to be respected, I think people will you know find uh you know the job paying off yeah, no yeah, paying yeah. Off their it's efforts. very meaningful work very meaningful mm. with so many pieces that still remain in beijing I, I i would imagine that one of the challenges for the curators at the museum is how to display so much of it and i know part of it has been opening up satellite museums but the other part of it too when i go to the forbidden city and i walk around i sometimes feel as if there's a two visions for this palace one is to recreate and, repre and recreate and renovate spaces to give a sense of what it might have looked like back in the day a lot of people are interested in that a lot of tv shows take place there a lot of people are are interested in the history of the space a little bit like what has been done in france with say versailles there's also an, another effort to take these spaces and make them into exhibit galleries a little bit like what was done in France with the Louvre. And it feels to me like there seems to be kind of both things going on at the same time. But I was curious, maybe you could talk about what's the future of this collection and, and what will that affect, how will that future affect the spaces in the Forbidden City proper? I think the, uh, the management of the Palace Museum have to really applaud their efforts in the past uh, 10, 15 years. I think they have uh, started with um, a few very well-known collections. Uh, I mean, exhibitions, sorry. So one of them is Shi uh, Bao Ji. Uh, you know, Chinese culture very much uh, is being carried on by the Chinese calligraphy and Chinese painting. So uh, in the Song Dynasty, Song Huizong had uh, such a, started such a tradition. Uh, so by employing um, all these painters work in, in his own imperial academy. And he also made a, a, a 
uh, category, uh, not category, uh, inventory of all these painting, important painting collections before Song Dynasty. And that tradition was being succeeded by Emperor Qianlong. And uh, so he had uh, started this uh, tradition, uh, this uh, inventory called Shi Qu Bao Ji. So basically that's the best, uh, most comprehensive uh, inventory of all the major uh, artists and uh, in all dynasties. I think about 2010, 2011, the, the Palace Museum started such a collection. And before that exhibition, I would say a lot of exhibitions happened just uh, you know without very much impact. Lots of people were indifferent to this mm -hmm. kind of uh, exhibitions because they were not being curated in around a theme. So I think that's uh, one of the first few exhibitions curated following mm -hmm. a very distinctive, mm -hmm. very well-known theme. So that attracted so many visitors. Uh, and uh, I think they have to really manage the crowd so well in such a short yeah, period of time. Yeah, that's a problem. But, uh, but you're not really answering one of Jeremiah's points, something that I feel very strongly. One of the things I always was kind of disappointed at is I kind of, I don't even really care if the artifacts are really the originals, but I want to go, I, like you say, they just open up the, uh, the, the, the concubine dwelling uh, you know, structures I want to be able to go in and kind of look and say, ah, this is what the, the, their, their, their bedrooms look like. This is a kind of comb they would have and then this mirror. And, and the, you know, they say, oh, this is where the Empress Dowager used to. Uh, I want to see, uh, you know, her bed and what she had reading or something, you know, that, that, that I can see. I've I seen old photos of uh, the Forbidden City when they were just, you know, like doing inventories or, or assessing it. And he said, oh, my God, here's one of the imperial kitchens. And you can see the pots, you see the pans, you see, you know, where the cooks are. I said, I want to see that. And, and when I go to the Forbidden City, that's, I never can find that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that's the challenge for the museum manage management because all these uh, ancient architectures, they were built uh, to such a small scale. I'm not talking about the main uh, monument buildings along the central axis, but I mean those sad uh, annex buildings, uh, which are mainly service areas. So those uh, buildings were relatively small. So for that kind of places, if you want to have a, a bedroom set up, you want to have a, a desk where the concubines or the Chinese empress right. make up, if you want to find a, such a space, then uh, it's, it's hard to get tourists to it's go a challenge to, to manage the I, crowd I pay though mm. I pay I pay 500 kwai <laughs> to go they, they did they did have some some experiment like that a few years ago but you know the you, the reason that I like love the the uh the Yangxin Yangxin uh, Dian mm. is because you can actually see where Qianlong sat mm, you can mm, see you on the mm, wall mm, with the painting mm, mm. Uh, the the san uh, san tang right and also the uh chelan ting zheng you know the, the throne there where the, you can see that and, and that's one of the few places that i can actually tell my students look this is where this happened there there is one place where i thought they did a very good job with this or a pretty good job with this and that what you mentioned it earlier that was the area in the western palaces that was used by the emperor's mother the various uh, empresses dowager or Dowager Empresses. <laughs> Empresses. But the, uh, the Shokangong, where they have opened up a section that was her living quarters 
and they and the curators have used a combination of existing artifacts, restoration, and I assume some pieces that maybe are our copies to really give us a good sense of mm -hmm. like, okay, we, this is a kind of the material culture of this. Yeah. Woman. Yeah. But I, I do, I, I take a lot of groups to the forbidden city and I agree with you that one of the challenges is where, <clears throat> where can I point to the yeah. life? I also wonder though, if this is one of those international visitor expectations versus domestic tourist expectations, that is to say, you and I often take international students there who have no frame of reference for what it would look like inside. Right. So many of the people who are going there, of course, you know, 98 or even before COVID, 98 or 99 out of every 100 people who walk through that door are from China. They have a pretty good idea, at least or a kind of mental picture of what it would have looked like. And so for but me, it maybe comes from TV shows. <laughs> it, it, it might come from TV shows, but still, the, I think the, the imperative to like, let's yeah. recreate this down to the last detail right. might not be as important as let's see the cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm not saying it's a, it breaks down purely on an international visitor, domestic visitor line, but I do wonder if that may be part of it. Yeah, yeah. I think for domestic tourists, sometimes they visit other places like uh, Chengdu, like, uh, you know, uh, even some other province, um, those heritage buildings, they have similar setup for some of those structures. So maybe that's one reason they, they find it uh, not that a inspirational experience. Uh, and on, the, uh, on another hand, I think for uh, Qing Dynasty emperors and empresses and uh, those um, young prince, uh, it's quite amazing to see actually how small their bedrooms are, their living quarters are. Yeah. They are not, uh, I mean, uh, because of my job, I was involved with the restoration of one section of it. It's called Zhuan Qin Zhai. So that's the place where Emperor Qianlong were planning for his you know, enjoyment after retirement. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty small. It's only about 400 square meters, but uh, includes a little stage includes a resting section and a, a, a place where he can write and he can meet with people. So that's quite complex, a lot of different functions, but are consolidated into one small space. So I think those that section after it's been restored, uh, I knew it wouldn't be opened up to the public yes. because it's so difficult. Well, it makes sense. So you, you always think that no one wants to live in the, in the Taihe Dian, you know, it's this, you know, you, they, they want to live in a human scale space. Exactly, exactly. That, yeah. That's why you can imagine Qianlong in this little room just yeah, sitting there yeah. drinking tea. And yeah. that's, he wants to stay in a, a small room. True. It's the hotel ballroom. <laughs> now, what I mean by right, that is yeah. like you go to a hotel ballroom. It's this big space. And unless there's a wedding or a party or an event, hotel ballrooms look terrible. They're big. They're open. terrifying, yeah. They're just huge, and there's yeah. nothing in them, and there's nothing that makes it come to life. And you walk into, for example, like the courtyard around the Taihe Dian, the Hall of Supreme Harmony. It's an enormous space, but when it's empty, when it's not being used for a ceremony, it has that hotel ballroom effect of, oh, uh, I, you know, it doesn't it, has, it doesn't leave that impression. Uh, agoraphobia. I will say that what the, the small rooms do present a challenge for visitors because, of course, if you're going to open up any space, you have to ask yourself first, what will it look like if 80,000 people walk through this space Every each day? day? Yeah. You know, and I, 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 and I can appreciate that challenge for the curators. They have to think in terms of very large numbers of people breathing, walking, and, and that's, you know, it's never good for preservation. But I've... I've as I said, I've been in at least two situations I know of. I can't remember what the first one was, but the second one was where 
because of somebody's guanxi or something or because I'm doing a TV show, they say, well, we're going to go into this, give you access to this room, but a tourist, it's not open to tourists. I mean, at least that would be something that occasionally people in special occasions could actually, and I guess it still exists. It's just that the, you can't open it to the, the general public, but I don't know. It's, it's a good point. No one's May- ever invited me to do that. <laughs> okay, well, I've lost all my guanxi, so... Here, we have Guanxi right here. The only time I've Look ever talked, the only time I've ever <laughs> talked to an official at the Forbidden City was when they threatened to kick me out for ketoing. <laughs> this is true. You were story. demonstrating. I was. I was in front of Tai Hlidian with a group of students. Now they were. They didn't know what a kuto or a kowtow for, for but you know what that looks like. So you know, I got down on my knees and I did the whole thing. And a security guard came. Run, he must have done about fifty meters across that courtyard <laughs> and started yelling at me and, of course, yelling at, at at my colleague. Like that is completely forbidden in the Forbidden City to do any kind of kutoing, kowtowing, or chong buying at all. And I don't know what he's doing, but you need to get him off his knees right now. And I was like, what goes on here <laughs> that this needs to be a rule? Like, is there a secret cult of, like, Guangxu emperor worshipers who are coming in and, like, we don't want to restore Puyi. Let's get to the second to the last guy. Uh, that's a challenge for me as well. Sometimes I take students, Chinese students there. I think it's very difficult for them, for me to tell them that uh, what kind of, you know, uh, intimidating ceremonies actually happened on, on, yeah, the, on the right. square. I yeah, think yeah. You, know, you have showcased uh, the best uh, possible uh Solutions for that. <laughs> it's hard to tell students like, okay, so t- in order to give you a real feeling of the Forbidden City, at the end of this tour, one of you will be beheaded. <laughs> Choose amongst yourselves. I'll get back to you at the end. <laughs> well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on today. There's so many things we could talk about here. Yeah, believe me, we could. this could be part one. So are there anything, are there any events coming up in the next year or two that are already on the calendar? I know there's things planned, but of course they're a little bit, you know, anything on the calendar coming up to celebrate the either a little bit late, the 600th anniversary or a preview of what's to come for the 2025 centennial of the Palace Museum? I think there are quite a lot of uh, very good exhibitions coming up and uh, there's one, I mean, two, maybe two sections will be uh, reopened. One section is uh, the uh, Garden of Qianlong Emperor's Retirement Lounge. Uh, that's uh, Qianlong Huayuan. Uh, so that's uh, supported by uh, an American foundation called the World Monument Fund. And I know they have been uh, working on that for maybe over 20 years. And uh, that section was supposed to be open. I think most of the construction was done. So only because uh, because of the COVID, they were planning on a large uh, ceremony celebrating the, the conservation work to 2020, but uh, that was put off. I think they will do that sometime this year, uh, according to my friends in New York. This is a New York-based foundation. They they have done some very beautiful work there. Second one is by Ronnie Chan's China Heritage Fund. So I think they have been doing uh, the Yangxin Dian. The Palace of uh, Mental Cultivation. Uh, I think they have been planning on also open up the palace sometime this year, uh, because after Jianfugong, after the Palace of Established Happiness, they have been donating to support the renovation uh, conservation effort of Yangxin Dian for the past. Uh, uh, I think it has been almost uh, eight or nine years. So I think it's ready to reopen. 
So that's going to be a major event coming up, if not this year, next year. Well, that's, that's really exciting. And, and part of that, too, I think is, at least my read in the last couple of weeks walking around Beijing, domestic tourism is back, baby. I was at the Temple of Heaven on Saturday, yeah. and there were lines to go into places. I have In 20 years, I have never seen a line. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that when these, uh, when these exhibitions, when these new spaces open up, I think it'd be good to, uh, as they say, chung the piao and uh, grab yeah. tickets as soon as you can, because I'll, I'll be willing to bet there's going to be some high demand. Renovated, and they will come. Well, Matthew, thank you again. It's great to see you. David, thank you as always. Yeah. And thank you listening to Barbarians at the Gate. You can find us wherever you find your finest podcasts. And we'll talk to you again.